Well, we are blessed today to have one of my dear friends in the ministry, uh, Eric Friel. And how long have you been in the ministry? I, I meant to ask you that. 24 years. 24 years. And uh, is an excellent expositor of God's Word. And that's one thing I love about Eric is that <laughs> when he preaches, you're going to get just what the Bible says. Uh, certainly nothing less and nothing more. And uh, I really appreciate that about him. I have sat under his preaching more than once, and it has always been memorable. And uh, this next section where we are, just so you know, we've started Philippians about a month ago, I think. And um, we're not very far. We're, we're very slow here in this church. But this next section was kind of, uh, it's kind of tough section to really develop a sermon out of so I asked Eric to do it that was funnier than that folks come on <laughs> actually we had planned something else earlier and then his schedule didn't work out I was going to give him the the prayer that I preached on yet last Sunday about uh, Paul's request for that that the love of, of, of the spirit would abound more and more um, but he, he was had another obligation and so he got the hard section but I appreciate Eric, I appreciate his ministry, his family, been a blessing. I uh, appreciate Jackson for laying Sam out in practice and humbling him. He needs all the humility he could get. And he came to the truck that day very humble, and it pleased my father's heart to see that. And I owe you that debt of gratitude, Jackson, for doing that. Um, but I want you to welcome to the Lake Wildwood pulpit, Reverend Eric Friel. Would you welcome him, church, this morning? Well, thank you all for having me this morning. It is a privilege to be with you and to open the Word of God and, uh, and focus our attention on it this morning. I am appreciative of uh, my friendship with Paul and uh, respect for him and his love for the gospel. When he leads us in that singing this morning, it's, it's not make-believe, is it? He has a genuine love for the gospel. I'm a little disturbed with him this morning, though. Because the first time he asks me to preach here at this church is Fellowship Lunch Sunday. Amen. And it's moving upon lunchtime. So the two hours that he's given me to preach <laughs> could make you mad at me. But I would encourage you, don't be mad at me, be mad at him. So, appreciate as well, as we turn to the word, the... Uh, drawing our attention to how beautiful the day is. It's, it's sad when Christians don't see and recognize and acknowledge the beauty of a day or the power of a thunderstorm or what God has created because He has created us for us. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech. Night unto night they pour forth knowledge. Knowledge and speech of what? of God the Almighty. And this day is declaring to us the character of God. This, is a, this creation is a theological creation. And I must say, Macon in central Georgia is beautiful this time of the year, isn't it? Beautiful. Well, it's our privilege to open the scriptures and turn to Philippians. And let's look at verse 12. We'll read through verse 18. 
And we see Paul's heart here, the heart of one whose life is focused on the gospel. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Version this morning. I'm, I'm not seeking to promote it. Uh, this Bible was given to me as a gift, and I've been using it, so um, I'm reading from it, not promoting it. You may like it, you may not. Um, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Let's bow and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the wonderful songs that we have been able to sing this morning. We are truly thankful to you that Christ has borne in his body on the tree the sins of his people, all the sins of his people. We thank you, O God, that he has died, that he might bring us to you, and that he has been resurrected, that we and his body might be brought to you. And so Paul tells us that we are seated with him at your right hand. We thank you, Father, not only for the glorious gift of Jesus Christ, but that you, our Father, and Christ, our brother, has given us the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit. And we ask for the Spirit's help now. We ask that he would remove from our minds mere human, mere fleshly thoughts and replace them with godly thinking. That you would be pleased to use this passage of scripture to bless us to that end. And Father, we pray not only for the preaching and the hearing of the word here in this place this morning, but wherever your word is faithfully preached, whether out of envy or whether out of love, that the glory of the gospel of Christ would be proclaimed. We ask it in his blessed name. Amen. I've entitled this message, this study in this passage of scripture, A Life Focused on the Gospel. A Life Focused on the Gospel. And we can jump ahead. You can see where it's going by way of application, can't you? It's a challenge for each of us that we have a life focused upon the gospel. That's what you're called to. If you're a Christian, it is not a choice. Your life must be focused upon the gospel. If you're not a Christian, then you're called to the gospel. Come, have your life focused on the gospel. If you refuse to come to Christ, come to the gospel, then the gospel will speak against you. And not having a life focused on the gospel 
will be your condemnation. So you can see the only logical step here. The only reasonable step is to come, reasonable step is to come to the glorious gospel. A life focused upon the gospel. The title of the sermon this morning, but why title it this way? What is it about this passage of scripture that draws that title forward? Well, it's the text itself. We're going to look at the statements in here, but did you notice that in practically every verse that was read, the gospel is mentioned in one way or another? And we're even going to stretch down a little bit, not stealing too much of next week's study, but stretch down to see that it continues even further. Yea, not only this text, but the entirety of this book is focused on the gospel. And it is telling us, focus your life on the gospel. One of the applications from the sermon that your pastor stole from me last week. <laughs> and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. Not just, not just that your love will keep on growing, but in knowledge and discernment. Growing in the gospel grows your love in knowledge and in discernment. It's not a foolish love. So as we look at verses 12 through 16, I'm sorry, 12 through 18, we see why it is a life focused on the gospel. Look with me at verse 12. The very end of verse 12, Paul says this, All of what has happened to me has worked for the advancement of the gospel. So he reveals to us right there in the beginning of this paragraph what his central focus and central concern is, and it is the gospel. And so look at verse 13. So that it, that it is a reference back to the gospel. The gospel, because of these things that have happened to me, the gospel has been known throughout the whole imperial guard. We can stretch down into verse 13. I'm sorry, into verse 14 now. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment, and dare even more to speak the word. Well, these brothers who were emboldened by what had happened to Paul were speaking the word now. What word were they speaking? It's another reference to the gospel. Constantly through here, Paul's focus is upon the gospel. I did go by in 13. Well, we'll come back to it in a moment. Look at verse 15. To some, to be sure, some preach Christ of envy and rivalry, but others of goodwill. What is the preaching of Christ? It is the preaching of the gospel. The person of Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Verse 16. These preach. There you have it again, a, a focus upon it. But further on in the verse. I am appointed, they preach out of love for me because they know I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, others proclaim Christ. There's another reference to the gospel. It's, it almost gets tiresome after a while, doesn't it? Paul, we get your point here. You're talking about the gospel. 
But Paul's not done pointing us to that. He continues to point us. In verse 18, he speaks again of proclaiming Christ. And because of that, he rejoices in it. <coughs> he continues on down. Let's look at verse 21 just for a moment. He says this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Y'all, that's gospel perspective. That's his gospel perspective. Now that's got to be our perspective. You might say, well, I'm not there. How can I get there? Well, you get there by doing what we're doing. A studying of the word and a living of the gospel. Paul says, my very life is this. My very life is Christ. My very life is the gospel. But yet were I to die, it would be gain. So you see, the Christian has a win-win situation. For me to live is Christ himself. For me to die, it's gain. I have benefited from it. So it's a life focused upon the gospel. And hopefully, even as we hear that, we say, Oh, I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Paul. I want my life focused upon the gospel. Because as you see in this passage of Scripture... A life focused upon the gospel is the life focused upon the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the ultimate. He is the preeminent one. He is the highest in all of creation. Through him all things have come into existence. By him, through him, and what's Paul saying in Colossians next? For him. For him. Do you know you exist? For Christ? You exist by Christ? You exist through Christ? One of the psychological longings in our day has been for some time is, why do I exist? Many psychiatrists and psychologists and philosophers of bygone days have committed suicide over that question. They couldn't answer it. We can answer it this morning. Why do you exist? For Christ. That's the biblical perspective. If you're not a Christian here this morning, turn then. Come to Christ. He says he will receive you if you come to him. If you are a Christian not living for Christ, then change. Stop that. Start living for Christ. If you're a Christian living for Christ, continue. Your life should be Christ. And Paul makes that clear here in the text. And we may want to ask the question now, why? Why such a life focused upon the gospel, upon Jesus Christ? That's a good and legitimate question, isn't it? I think the proper answer to that, looking at the scriptures, would be, the Apostle Paul was well acquainted with the person and the work of Christ. Why is your life, Paul, so focused on the gospel and upon the person of Christ? I think his answer would be like his preaching on the night that Eutychus fell out of the window and died. That is such an astounding passage of Scripture. And it's not 
just that Eutychus fell out of the window and that he died, I mean, that's, that's pretty significant in itself. It might even get a chuckle out of us. But Paul goes down and raises him from the dead. And sometimes we stop right there and think, whoa, that's, that's truly astounding. Paul raised this man who is dead. And listen, Luke, the writer of Acts, was a physician. He knew that Eutychus was dead. By the way, you know a good way to remember the name Eutychus? I had a friend in seminary who said, I remember it this way. If you'd have fallen out of a window and died, you'd have cussed too. <laughs> so, so Paul raises him from the dead, and we don't know if he cussed or not. Probably didn't. But here's the amazing thing to me. What does Paul do after that? They go back upstairs, and Paul keeps right on teaching the word. Is that not astounding? All he did was raise this guy from the dead. But the more important thing is this. Let me tell you of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's continue. Eutychus, come on back up here and stay away from the window ledge. Okay. Keep listening. Okay. I've always pondered in that text, was, was Paul's teaching boring? Or was Eutychus just not paying attention? Whose fault was it that he fell out that window? We were going to a teacher's conference in Birmingham, Alabama one time. And uh, I was driving the van. I had a bunch of teachers in there. And just as we were leaving Macon, we'd just gotten on to 475. One of the teachers said, what, what's a Reformed Baptist anyway? <laughs> they told me later, they said, they will never ask that question again. Because I talked from Macon to Birmingham defining what a Reformed Baptist was. So if we ask Paul in the van going to Birmingham, what's the gospel? Why are you so Christ-centered? He would, he would go on explaining, and he would explain to us, I think in the first place this, he would explain to us the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh. He's perfection. He's all power. Amen. He's, as, as Beaky entitles one of his books, the glory and the beauty of Christ. He's beauty in a way that we cannot fathom. And Paul would say, let me tell you about his being, about his person. Isn't it sad that we, at times, kind of bored? With the things of Christ, oh, I mean, there's so many exciting things in the world to be, look, these things right here, they're fascinating, aren't they? The computers, the televisions, the inane shows. Some people today are so excited that their ball team won yesterday and they're going to the NCAA championship. Oh, oh, and Jesus, too. <laughs> Jesus, too. They're excited about Jesus, too. Paul knew this Christ of the gospel. But also he would tell us of the work of this Christ. He would tell us the work of the gospel. He would tell us of the, 
the filthiness and the wretchedness of sin, not sin out there in the abstract as a philosophical concept, but he would tell us of the filthiness and the wretchedness of our own sin. How terrible and how ugly it is. Oh, it's just a little white lie. Hold it a minute. God is the God of truth. The scriptures constantly pound that. Why does it constantly pound that? Titus 1, God who cannot lie. A little white lie is an attack upon the character of God who cannot lie. Paul would proclaim to us the Christ who understands sin. He would, he would proclaim to us the Christ in his work who revealed the Father to us, who walked the earth displaying God. That was a primary part of Christ's mission, to display the Father. This is what the Father looks like. Remember, Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus, I think probably in pretty strong rebuking language, show us the Father, Philip. Where have you been? Put your cell phone away for a few minutes. Shut your computer. Forget the ball game. Listen to me, Philip. I have been displaying to you the Father. When you see me, you've seen the Father. And Paul saw the Christ. You see, he would talk for some time on this subject. He He would talk of the suffering of Christ. The thing that Peter tells us that the Old Testament prophets longed to look into. And they were told it was not for them, but it was for us. And now Paul can explain to us the sufferings of the Christ. Let me make a book recommendation. You know, it it goes with, I guess it goes with the the pulpit ministry to recommend books. Leahy has written a little book. It's 102 pages, I think. The Cross He Bore. He goes into the sufferings of Christ. It is fantastic. Gives us the nuances of many of the words. Paul understood this. The weight of our sin was placed upon Christ so that Paul says this. He who knew no sin became sin. That word there became, I think, indicates. I hope this is proper theology. I think it indicates that Christ at that point became the very essence of sin. Not just that he was carrying it. He became the very essence of sin. I don't know how. Don't ask me beyond that. But I do know the word says he became sin. How remarkable. Let me ask you a question I know the answer to. Would you be willing to carry your best friend's sin and their punishment for it? No. (laughs) No. We wouldn't be willing to do that. Christ bore in his body the fullness of the sins of all of his people. All of their sins. Mind-boggling, isn't it? You see why Paul would talk all night about this Jesus? Why he would put in this passage of Scripture that he's seeking to live a God-centered life, a gospel-centered life? He would talk of the glory of the resurrection. We can't let that become old hat either, can we? This man, Jesus Christ, was dead. 
beautiful how the scriptures reinforce these things for us. A centurion is standing in the presence of Pilate when Joseph of Arimathea says, can we have his body so we can take care of it? And Pilate's kind of shocked. He's dead. He's dead already. He looks to the centurion. Why a centurion? This man understood death. Listen, when Luke records and others record this centurion saying to Pilate, he's dead, you can rest assured he was dead. What a mystery. Christ dies. He's dead. The punishment that we deserve. Listen, I'm looking into the eyes of people who deserve death because of your rebellion against God. Let Christ takes it and he suffers death in our place. I love what one of the hymns said, the God of life experienced death so that we might have life. And then, of course, Paul He understood the glory of the resurrection. That tomb could not hold the Savior. He burst forth. He's risen. He's he's exalted to the Father's right hand. And in Him we are represented. That's something to get excited about. Why, Paul? Why are you so stressing a life focused upon the gospel? He would say, because I know the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In light of all this, let me, let me ask you all this morning again. Honest. We, we, we get no benefit. You get no benefit from lying. We, and, and we try to do that. We go in God's presence, don't we? I, I had a hard time sleeping last night, and I realized, man, you were, you're trying to deceive God about something here, and it's something about how I think about God. With God's thinking about me in this situation. I know he's not thinking about me like that in this situation because he reveals himself and how he thinks about me in a situation like this, but I still wanted to project what I thought he was thinking about me. Now, that would be ridiculous if I was the only one who did that. (laughs) But we all do that, don't we? So let's be honest. Can you say, like Paul, I desire a gospel-focused life, a gospel-centered life, because it's a Christ-centered life. Well, as we explore this a bit more, I want us to focus on at least four and probably five ideas that come out of this text because they're, they're powerful ideas with reference to uh, a gospel-centered life. The first one is this. It's personal. It's personal. This text of Scripture that we read this morning, it's personal. And as you study through the book of Philippians, I'm sure you will be reminded of it time and time again. This is a, this is a personal matter here. Okay? This is not a matter of a, a, an official correspondence by the Apostle Paul. He wrote an essay that he wanted delivered to the Philippian Christians or the Christians at Philippi. Or that he wrote this diatribe. Oh, it's a magnificently argued diatribe. No, no, no. Or that he wrote this formal theological presentation of what you're dealing with. It's none of that. It's a letter. 
It's a very highly personal letter in which Paul reveals himself, in which he deals the hearts of the Philippian Christians, in which he can say to them, I pray for you. I pray for you constantly upon every remembrance of you. I pray for you, and this is why I'm praying for you, that your love may abound. What an emphasis in Scripture, that our love would abound. But not just that it would abound, but that it would abound in knowledge and discernment. That you would know the outworkings of this love in knowledge and discernment. Simple illustration, there's often times when a parent, I've, I've got six children, thankfully three of them are here this morning, and, and I've wanted to express love to them as they were growing up, and sometimes I did it really wrong. Really wrong. That's an admission, guys. Really wrong. My, my first one was, of course, the experimental model. Yeah, we parents a lot of times really blow it on the experimental model, don't we? And Paul's concern here, and his personal concern is, oh, that your love that I see in you would be directed and formed in knowledge and discernment. That it would constantly grow, that you would, you would abound in it, oh, but that it would be directed in discernment. It's a very personal letter. And one thing we see here is this, Paul, the, this is the great apostle. This is the one who in the eternal decree of God before the creation, he had specified that Paul would be the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a big name in the history of Christianity. And he writes a letter to these people, these Christians in Philippi. And through the power of the Spirit, he wrote it to us as well. Yeah, when you read this, read it not as a, a formal theological presentation. It is. But read it as a letter from the apostle's heart to your heart. Live like this. Very personal. And it's very personal. You can see in verse 14. Well, it says in verse 12, really. And, and in verse 14 as well. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I do like that about the Christian Standard Version. It takes that word brethren, and, and in the Greek it's brethren, but the word used is inclusive. It doesn't leave you ladies out. We, we Christian men are not a bunch of male chauvinist pigs. Okay? We love you as well, and Paul does, and he says here, in this culture of all things where women, you know, were not counted and not prized for what they should have been prized for. Paul has a nice touch there. Brothers and sisters. In verse 14, brothers and sisters. Now let's get the impact of that word and the personal aspect of it. I'm the youngest of ten children. I speak most of the time of my brothers and sisters with a degree of affection. Sometimes not so much affection. I remember some things. But they're my brothers and sisters. And you know there's only nine of them. Now there's only seven of them. Yeah, that's different. Paul, 
so personal. He calls us brothers and sisters. And it's, it's part of the riches of, of this. He, he does it because he's concerned for them. And his concern for them is really overwhelming when you look at the circumstances. As you've heard already, where is Paul at this time? He's in prison. Probability is, you know who Eric Friel is thinking of when Eric Friel's in prison? He's thinking about Eric Friel. <laughs> I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm wondering why everybody else is not feeling sorry for me. And Paul, while in prison, and this is not... Central State Prison out here. This is not uh, a prison where prisoners have rights and where they get benefits and they get... It's, it's a bad place. I've been there many times. It's a, it's a bad place. It's a prison. But it's not this. Paul is chained to a Roman guard who is a member of the Imperial Guard of Caesar. And that guard knows the rough life and he knows death and he knows suffering and he's not he's not unwilling to inflict that and while in those circumstances Paul says ah, I'm concerned about you my concern is about you and part of the focus is my concern is about you being concerned about me so don't be concerned about me that's my concern about you don't be overly I'm doing just fine is what he's saying here what a beautiful gospel touch. And, and you know what it does? It reminds us of the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. In the upper room, the upper room discourse. Read those chapters carefully. Chapter 13 through 17 of John's gospel. Do you know who Jesus is concerned about during that upper room? His apostles. It's stunning to me. He's going to his death the most horrible experience that any man has ever experienced or ever will experience. He's going to his death and he's concerned about his apostles. Paul is like Jesus. And he says to us, be like Jesus. We have a world that lives in hyper self focus. <laughs> hyper self focus. I'm reading this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And uh, Truman is tracing through this how we've gotten to the point where we are philosophically, where. Um, where we are is what I think and feel about myself is the most important thing. The therapeutic self, the psychological self, it's the most important thing. Y'all, this is where our culture is. It's where our culture is. But you know what Paul is demonstrating for us here? That's not where he is. <laughs> it's not where he is. He's concerned about the Philippian Christians. He wants them to be doing well. And so we have a very, very personal letter here. And again, I, I bring it to each of us in here. Where are you in that? Are you ultimately and maybe even exclusively concerned about self? 
if you are, you're, you're, right, where the, you're right where the culture is. You're right where the culture is. What is the, he points out, what is the most important thing in our life right now is the way I feel about myself. I was talking to a friend about this. If I feel like, um, if I feel like a, right now if I feel like I'm a woman, then how can you argue with that? I, I feel like I am. And so I said to my friend, what, what if right now I feel like a murderer who wants your wallet? <laughs> how can you argue with that? That's what I feel like right now. But Paul in this letter, even by the writing of the letter, is showing us, think about others. Think about others. Stop thinking about yourself all the time. Think about others. If you're thinking about yourself all the time, or just about your family all the time, you are in a prison. You're locked up. And you've got to break out of that. Let's go to the next one. Influential. The gospel is influential. Let's put it this way. A gospel-focused life is influential. Notice here he says, now, in verse, um, in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me. That phrase there, I want you to know, is a, is a pretty powerful phrase. Paul uses it uh, sporadically in times when he's communicating something really important. Like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he's going to turn to the, the coming of Christ. He says, now, I want you to know, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. This is really important, so you've got to get it. So he says to them, this is really important. I want you to know this. And part of what he wants them to know is this. Though I am in chains, those chains have not chained me. They have not chained the influence. And the influence has gone to at least these two groups. One, it's gone to the imperial guard. It's gone to the praetorium, not the building, but to the guard itself. It's... It is great. It's a phenomenal thing. Paul wanted to get to Rome, but he didn't think he was going to get to Rome the way he did. And the way he got to Rome was through great difficulties. He says here, that which has happened to me actually advanced the gospel. So what had happened to him? Well, when he got converted, he started right away confronting the Jews so that in Acts, I think it's 12, the brothers have to grab hold of him and get him out of Jerusalem. He's in trouble already. From the very get-go, Paul's in trouble. He's experienced lies against him. That's always a comforting thing, isn't it? Do you like people to spread rumors about you, lie about you? He's, he's got a, an, an assassination attempt planned. He's going to travel from Jerusalem to, I forget where, but it's up in the north. And a group of them have determined they're not even going to eat until this happens. They're going to kill him on the way. Thankfully, his nephew finds out about it. He has to constantly be on the run. At one point in the book of Acts, they're reaching for him to... 
They've got a hold of him, and they're going to rip him apart, and the Roman guard comes running in and, and rescues him. He's shipwrecked. And all this time, he's chained to a Roman guard. Now he gets to Rome, he's in prison, he's chained to a Roman guard. When he says here, all that has happened to me, it wasn't that a limousine came and picked him up and took him to Rome and he got to meet the emperor and had a wonderful meal. All that has happened to me, he says this, this is, this is the important thing. It has advanced the gospel. The gospel has gone forward. Oh, that that would be our desire as well. The gospel to go forward. And that we would labor for the going forth of the gospel. In our own lives, in those that we have immediate contact with, the sending out of missionaries, the sending out of church planners, the sending out of preachers, that the gospel would go forward. Sinners would hear the glory of Jesus Christ. There's other implication here as well. As with Paul experiencing these terrible things, they were orchestrated by God the Almighty. He was working out his magnificent will. And a lot of times the bad things that happen in our lives are not the work of Satan. A lot of times it's God directing us. He's, he's showing us. He's moving us. He's, he's doing what he did here in Paul's life. And our, our lot, our responsibility to that is to walk humbly before the Lord. So he influences these two groups because of what has happened to him. He influences the imperial guard. Now what is thought to have happened here, and it's based upon good research and thinking, is that the guard was chained to him. And this, is a, this guard would be like um, a United States SEAL. Are there higher level fighting forces than SEALs? There may be some trained higher than that now. It would be the highest level fighting force. These guys got here through, through their abilities and through their experience and sometimes through some political influence and friends and money. But they were warriors. And Paul is chained to one. And after this guy's shift, Paul will be chained to another one. And then he'll be chained to another one. And what some of us would do here, myself included, is I'd ask him about his wartime experience. I'd ask him if he was a hunter. I'd ask him if he hunts turkeys. I'd ask him, do you fish? Do you... you know what Paul did? Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. <laughs> Let me tell you about the gospel. Let me... And so through that, Paul says here, the gospel has gone through the praetorium, through the imperial guard. They've all heard the gospel. And we know later from other writings that the gospel went into the very household of Caesar and some of his servants were converted. Yeah, praise the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? Oh, what a lesson we can learn. Locked in prison in Rome. Oh, I feel so sorry for myself. You just don't know what I'm going through. Paul says, oh, the gospel is going forth in the Roman guard. And we've got to do some sanctified speculation. Undoubtedly, Caesar had heard the gospel. Surely one of these guys, or somebody that one of these guys talked to, one of the servants perhaps, talked to Caesar and said, I've heard the most remarkable thing. And the gospel went to the top, went to Caesar. But also the brethren, notice the influence of a, 
of a gospel-centered life. Verse 14, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment. They've seen what I've gone through, and they've gained confidence, and they've become more bold, and they're preaching the gospel. It's so interesting here because he, he doesn't say, because of the success of the gospel, they saw me preach, and these people came forward, they got converted, we established a church. He says, no, because of all these things I've experienced. And they saw I was shipwrecked and, and all these other things, bitten by a, a viperous snake. And through those experiences, they've gained confidence because of me. What did they gain confidence for? Preaching of the gospel. Preaching of the gospel. And so one of the implications of this letter is this. Paul... The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, our Father, wants us to be like the brethren, the brothers and sisters mentioned here in uh, verse 14. Actually, it is significant. The word is changed here to brothers. The brothers gain the confidence for the preaching of the word. He wants us to gain that confidence. Proclaim the word. They spoke the word of Christ. Notice what they did here in verse 14. They dared to speak it even more fearlessly. Oh yes, there was some fear, and we can relate to that, can't we? But they, they started to speak it more fearlessly. Further on it says in verse 16, they preached out of love. They preached, I think, out of love for me because they knew I was appointed for the preaching of the gospel. And out of love for me, they preached the gospel. I couldn't go out there and do it. They went out and preached the gospel. They preached it not from selfish ambitions, but they preached it for the glory of Christ. But there was another group that didn't preach it that way. Let's go to the third thing here. So <clears throat> the gospel is a life focused on the gospel is personal, it's influential. I'm just going to mention this one because I've burned up so much time. Uh, it's brethrenal. That's my word. It's brethrenal. See, a life focused on the gospel is concerned about the brothers. It's concerned about the church. When your pastor says, what a, what a good thing for us to meet here, he is exactly right. This is a meeting unlike any other meeting on the face of the earth, when the church gets together, and we have to see it that way. Amen. The church has to be central in our eyes because it is central in the mind of God and the work of God and the purpose of God and the heart of God and the heart of Jesus Christ. The church is central, and the gathering of the church Amen. is vital to God. It needs to be vital to us. You cannot grow to maturity in Christ, which if you're a Christian, you desire that, but you cannot grow to maturity in Christ apart from the church of Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. The work, the gifts necessary for us growing to maturity in Christ are given to the church. And so the, the life lived by the gospel, uh, gospel focus, I'm going to put it this way, it's brethrenal. It's concerned about the brethren. There's a compassion for the brethren. I was going to reference us to Psalm 112 and turn over there, but, but just go to Psalm 112 at some point. It's describing the blessed person. And that blessed person has concern for other 
blessed people. May I press that a little bit? What is your concern for other Christians? What is your concern for the church? What is your labor to that end? I'm going to meddle here. Paul didn't ask me to say this, but I was listening to a, a broadcast uh, last week. In the 1990s, the statistics were that 2.4% Christians gave regularly. 2.4% gave regularly. That ought to make us sick. It ought to upset our stomachs. Because Christians who have been redeemed through the pouring out of the blood of Jesus Christ, this unspeakable gift, are so stinking cheap. They can buy their great computers. They can buy their games. They can, they can go out to eat. They can do everything else. But they don't understand the significance of the church. But I heard last week, it's grown a lot. It's almost 5% now. Isn't that disgusting? 95% of the people who say, I'm a Christian, will not get this thing out and give to the advancement of the kingdom. In my thinking, what an easy way. <laughs> Rather than to go down and do street preaching on the corner, being mocked and so on and so forth, or, or going to the mission field, we just um, launched some missionaries that uh, they left their family behind, they just had a baby, and they're gone to Thailand? Wow. All we got to do at times is just pull that thing out. Those who are focused on a life of the gospel, or life is focused on the gospel, is, are, um, are giving their brethren all. Fourthly, then, is this. A life focused on the gospel is often controversial. It's often controversial. In here, there's one of those very sad things, very sad elements of the New Testament church. And it's one of those things that corrects us. If we ever have the thinking, oh, we need to return to being like the church in the New Testament, the first century church. Hold it a minute. Hold it a minute. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians? Paul gets done with the introduction, and the last thing he says before he moves on is, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's claiming the full power and authority of Jesus Christ. In the next verse he says, now I hear there's troubles among you, and we're going to start straighten them out right now. The first century church was full of trouble. So we don't have to return to it, do we? I mean, we're right there already. And so look what happens here. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Well, envy of what? They envied the Apostle Paul. They were in rivalry with the Apostle Paul. They didn't like the fact that he was prominent and he got attention. They wanted the attention. They wanted to be prominent. Later he says in verse 17, they, the others, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Their, their motives, their ambitions are selfish. They want to follow him. I want you to, to follow me. 
be all that's, that's throughout the church in our day, isn't it? Some in our day preach Christ out of envy. They preach him out of rivalry. They want to be bigger and better than that church down the road. How? You've got to wonder, how could the church impact the United States? How could we impact central Georgia if there was mutual love between churches? And an adjoining into the expansion of the kingdom between churches instead of a, a rivalry. And your pastor can probably say the same as what I can say. I, I've talked to people like this. I've met them. I probably have been like that myself at times. Hope I've repented of it. But notice Paul's attitude here, how, how great it is. It don't matter. <laughs> it don't matter to me. These people are envious of me, so they're preaching the gospel. These people have selfish ambitions, so they're preaching the gospel. These folks don't like me, so they're preaching the gospel. And it don't matter to me. What, what's going on here is this. The gospel is being preached. And I like what James Boyce says. Uh, he says, this is in the church. Paul's not saying these people are not Christians. This is in the church. And and as we see the church through history, and we see the church now, we see that, yeah, it happens like that. So a couple of applications. One is this. Beware. Beware. This goes on in our day. Beware of that. Don't be, don't be caught up in the envy and the rivalry and, and the selfish ambition. And then secondly, Follow those who preach the Christ, who preach the gospel from true and pure motives. The fifth thing I would say here, and I just want to mention this and draw it to a close. The fifth thing I would say is it's, it's crucifixional. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word or not. Let it be a word. We can coin it. It's crucifixional. <clears throat> what, what we're seeing here is this. We're seeing an outworking of what Paul says in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the power and the son, faith in the Son of God. We're seeing that worked out here. For this man who's a prisoner in Rome, to be able to write with, with a heart of concern for these Christians, to be able to write and say, I don't care about what those guys are doing, they're preaching the gospel. Even, even though they've got envy and rivalry, they're preaching the gospel. We're seeing a man who's living a crucified life. He's died to the flesh, ongoing death to the flesh, and he's seeking to live it to Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you can't do both. You can't live to the flesh, the works of the flesh, and bear the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. You've got to decide. Are you going to follow Christ and live for Him? Or do something halfway? Four applications. I add another one. Five applications. One is this. Oh, y'all live the gospel-centered life. Live a life focused on the gospel. Secondly, know that the events of our life are superintended, of our lives are superintended by God for his purposes, often for the advancement of the gospel. Wouldn't it be amazing? God uses a car accident, smashes your car today. 
and somebody hears the gospel because of it. We're not going to pray that way. Thirdly, grow a genuine gospel concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Grow in your heart and in your thinking a genuine gospel concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fact is, we don't care for each other as we ought. Fourthly, know that there will be strife even among Christians, even among churches. You know the story of Luther and Zwingli? They... Luther did not even consider Zwingli a Christian because of a couple of areas where he didn't agree with Luther. Luther was a great Christian man. Zwingli was a great Christian man. <laughs> Here's that conflict. And then fifthly and finally, the, the obvious. Paul has throughout this passage, Christ, 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 Christ. Pursue Jesus Christ. The scriptures tell us that. Pursue Jesus Christ. If you do not pursue him, you will not find him. Pursue Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul writing these profound words, uh, great words of encouragement. We pray, Lord, that our lives will be gospel-focused and that there will be great fruit for your glory that come from that. And we ask it all in the glorious name of our, of our Savior. Amen. your life and we'll see what God does. You'll be surprised. Our team's going to come on up. We're going to sing our response song. Say, so why are we singing a response song? Because you need to respond to the words spoken and preached. Amen? Amen? Amen. We need to respond with worship. We need to respond with repentance. We need to respond with a commitment to apply what we have heard today. And it's exactly what we're going to do. So I want to invite you to stand. Maybe you're here today and you have never repented of your sins. Maybe you're here today and say, I have nothing to repent of. Oh, how misinformed are you? Maybe today you need to turn away from your sin. Admit your sin and embrace Jesus. This is the time right now to do that. Put your faith in Him and begin to walk with Him. And as we, even as we sing this song, May we begin to apply what we've heard. So wonderfully provided for us that we would do it with a deep and a great joy. And that this fellowship would be a dull picture of what's going to happen uh, when, you, when Christ returns. And help us to enjoy it so well that it pleases you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's sing that doxology as we leave this morning. And Brother Eric, I'll ask you to join me on the porch. Let's sing together.